0: Well, guess what, Book of the Bible, we're back in today. We are back in the Book of Mark. Before, we were so rudely interrupted by everything that is 2020. Before there was a global pandemic, before presidential debates and elections, three hurricanes and a partridge in a pear tree, we were studying the Book of Mark. 2020 has been like the longest decade of my life. Life, isn't it? Right. I feel I'm like 55 years old now. I mean, that's how long 2020 has been. But hey, we're diving back into the book of Mark today. For those of you who are new, this is our 47th sermon in our sermon series through the book of Mark that we're calling the Simple Gospel. Because here at Redemption, we know that life can get a little crazy, but we believe that the gospel is simple. And that's exactly what Mark is. Mark literally is the simple gospel. Out of all four gospels, it is the most clear, the most concise, it is the quickest, and it's the simplest, because Mark's whole goal is to get you to Jesus as fast as possible. And that's our whole goal too. We want to help you get to Jesus as fast as possible, or the way that we say it at Redemption is this, experiencing life change through Jesus. That's what Mark is all about. It's about who Jesus is, what Jesus does and how we can live our lives for Jesus. And so, if you're a new Christian, you're young in your faith, and you're wondering where should I start reading the Bible, I personally recommend the Book of Mark because it literally is the simple gospel. And so, we're going to be diving back in. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. And while you're go ahead and find your place, let me just let me just say what God's been doing in the life of our church because we. Start started the book of Mark in March of 2018. How many of you are here in March of 2018 when we kicked off the book of Mark? Look around. Yeah, look at you. Yeah, you guys hung in there. You're still rocking and rolling with this. Praise the Lord for you. But there's a lot of new people who have also jumped in along the way. And I remember whenever we first started to do the book of Mark, I believe that the Holy Spirit put it in my heart for us to do a deep dive through a long book of the Bible. And so I started getting pretty excited, and I'm telling my friends, and I'm like, hey, we're going to spend two years studying one book of the Bible. And my pastor friends, who I love dearly, they're like, Byron, you're crazy. You're going to spend two years preaching one book? I mean, your sermons are already long. And I'm like, hey, my sermons aren't long. Maybe y'all sermons are short. I don't know. (laughs) You, but they said your church isn't gonna grow. That that people don't really like the Bible and hearing exposition through the text, you need to keep it, you need to keep it relevant, you need to keep it short, address felt needs, hot topics, hit it, and then move on to the next subject, and that's the way that your church is gonna grow. Nobody wants to go to a church that's gonna spend two years studying one book of the Bible. And I said, that sounds like a dare. And so in March of 2018, <laughs> we kicked off the the book of Mark. But let me just tell you what God has been doing in the life of our church ever since. When we first started Mark, our church was about 80 people in an old dirty bar. Yeah, we had church in a bar, set up, tear down. You walk in the room and you can just feel the shame from the night before. It was amazing. And God really did a great work in our church during that time. So we started Mark with about 80 people in an old dirty bar. And then we grew and we grew and we grew to eventually we outgrew the bar. And And then we found this warehouse, we rented it, we renovated it, and we launched in here and we grew from about 80 people to about 300 people over the course of a year. That is triple the size of our church. Come on, I hate to wake you up from your nap, but you can praise God for that. As a church, since we've opened, we've baptized 152 new believers in the life of our church. Just after COVID 19 with the reopen, we got to baptize 21 people in a single day. I was talking with a pastor that I love and I look up to, and he said, Byron, God is blessing your church in an amazing way. I've been the pastor of this church for 20 years, and I can't remember a time I baptized 21 people in a single day. God is working in our church. Since COVID 19, we've actually had 42 new people go through next steps to get connected in the life of the church. We had over 50 people come to our membership party to become official covenant members here with us at Redemption. It's amazing to see what Jesus is doing in our church because when you open up God's word, God loves to bless his word. We believe that God's word brings the growth. So we open up the Bible and we just preach the Bible and let the Spirit do what only the Spirit can do. We love to preach straight through books of the Bible. In fact, it's one of our core values expositional preaching, because God's word brings the growth. And so for the last two years now, 47 sermons, we've just been preaching verse by verse through the book of Mark, chapter one, verse one, working our all the way through until we get to the very end. But today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 11. And because I'm so fired up, I wasn't originally going to tell you guys this, but one more thing that the Lord is doing when we started, we were at the gig. We grew and we moved here from just starting the book of Mark. But let me tell you, by the time we finish the book of Mark in 2021, we will no longer be meeting in this building. We will purchase, find, and we're moving to a new building by the time we finish the book of Mark. And so be praying for us, be praying for your church and the opportunities and the buildings that are being available for us. But I can tell you this, by the time we finish the book of Mark, we will have a new home. We will begin purchasing and renovating that new home because God's word grows the church. God is doing some amazing things here in the life of our church. Every single week, people keep showing up. Every single week, people come through these doors for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. They're experiencing hope, and they're experiencing grace, and they're experiencing mercy, and they're experiencing redemption and salvation, and they're experiencing what we call life change through Jesus. It happens every single week. I've seen marriages be restored. I have seen addictions be broken. I have seen depression being delivered off of other people. I have seen families be reconciled. I have seen destinies be altered. I have seen hearts be made whole, and I have seen people's lives genuinely changed by the gospel it's beautiful what Jesus is doing in the life of our church redemption we got a good thing going for us we got a good thing everything's up and to the left baptisms up and to the left attendance up and to the left membership up into the left next steps up into the left we're starting a youth ministry on Wednesday everything is up into the left God is doing a good thing in our church we got a good thing going for us but Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because I still got to preach a sermon. There is one thing that if we're not careful, that if we let this one thing creep into our lives, creep into our hearts, and get into our church, it's one thing that would ruin everything. You know what that is? It's religion. It's man's attempts to be able to earn favor from God based upon their outward appearance, or their external services, it's religion. And if we allow religion to creep into our hearts, lives in church, then it would ruin everything because as we're gonna see today, religion takes a good thing, turns it into a bad thing, because religion ruins everything. If you're taking notes, they should be under your seat. Go ahead, pull them out, write that down. Religion takes a good thing, makes it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything. And we're going to see today a great example about how religion ruined a good thing. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Today we're going to see Jesus kill a tree and go to church. Jesus is going to kill a tree and he's going to go into the old covenant equivalent of church known as the temple. Here's what we read picking up in verse 12. On the following day, when Jesus came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now let's go ahead and pause there for a sec. If you remember to the previous sermon, Jesus has finally made his way to the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, last time we saw it was what's known as the triumphant entry. It takes place on a Palm Sunday, even though most commentators believe that it actually happened on a Monday, it's where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and he's revealing himself as the promised Messiah, that he is the holy anointed, the chosen one, that Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that they expected because Jesus doesn't do anything the way that the religious leaders expected him to do. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he walks into the temple, he looks around, and then he goes home, back back to Bethany. So what you need to understand, if you're just catching up with us, is Mark chapter 1 through 10 takes place over a three-year period. And it's a period known as the Galilean ministry of Jesus. So it all takes place in a region known as Galilee. This is where most of our Sunday school stories take place. So when Jesus was baptized, when Jesus healed the man with the paralytic, they cut the hole through the ceiling, as Jesus fed 5,000, walked on water, calmed the storm. All of our favorites, yeah, we already preached that. Okay, that already happened back in Mark one through ten. It was a three year period, but Jesus was journeying all the way through to Jerusalem, which was his ultimate goal because it was in Jerusalem on Passover where Jesus would substitute Himself in our place as our Passover Lamb. He would die the sacrificial death that we all deserve, and through His death, burial, and resurrection, then we would attain grace and forgiveness from our sins. And so, Mark. 1 through 10 takes place over a three-year period, but Mark 11 and through 16 take place over a one-week period, just seven days. Mark zooms in really fast because he wants you to understand everything that Jesus did. And here's what Jesus did. He went to Bethany, he came back, and he was hungry. Just another reason why I love Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. because he is always hungry. Anybody ever notice that? Jesus is always trying to get something to eat. And so Jesus, he goes back into Jerusalem, and it says he was hungry. So he's looking for something to eat. He wants a little snacky snack. So verse 13 And seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, but when he came to it, he found that it was nothing but leaves. Very important. Circle that in your Bibles, underline it, highlight it, remember it. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples, they heard it. You think that's interesting? Did Jesus just kill a tree? Yes. Jesus just killed a tree. Say, but Jesus, that's not very environmentally friendly of you to kill trees. Well, he made trees. He can kill them if he wants to. and they came to Jerusalem and he entered into the temple. This is the center for religious activities. This is where you would meet with the priest, you would go to pray, you would perform your sacrifices. Every year during Passover, it was the law that any Jewish person had to go to the temple on Passover so that they could perform these sacrifices. It's where you would worship, it's where you'd get teaching, it was the center for fellowship and all the religious activities. So you can kind of think about about it a little bit like going to church. So, you woke up this morning, you were hungry, and you came to church. Did you kill your tree on your way to church? Okay, maybe some of y'all's mornings were that bad too. I don't know. So, you wake up, kill a tree, come to church. That's Jesus' day. Here we go. We keep reading. And he began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything the temple. So Jesus here, he gets a little angry. It says he overturned the money tables, right? Jesus flipped out. That's what Jesus is doing. He is flipping tables because he flipped out. He is angry Jesus. He kills a tree, and then he goes crazy in the middle of church. I mean, this is what Jesus basically did. He like, says no one can go in and out of the temple, so he's blocking the exits. He's like, where do you think you're going? Sit down! Like, that's Jesus on this day. And he's running around like a madman. In fact, in John's gospel, it says that he made a whip. Okay, that's premeditated, right? I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, but he's like, hold on, I'll be right back. (laughs) He walks over. He's like, "Mm -hmm -hmm, making the whip. I'm about to whip these guys. That's what's about to (laughs) happen. Okay, all right, better now. Flip the tables, Indiana Jones whipping them up, right? That's Jesus on this day. He's angry, Jesus. Now, some of y'all, you'll have a little bit of a problem with this because you've always assumed that Jesus was soft and cuddly and that Jesus, he was just hanging out in the shade, sitting under a tree. No, he killed the tree. He's sitting under the tree. He's sitting in the lotus position drinking his pumpkin spice latte, driving his Prius. I know you that's the Jesus that you all think, right? But that's not the Jesus we see in the Bible. Here we see angry Jesus. We see Jesus is very upset. Jesus is causing a scene, flipping tables and whipping people. Let's keep going. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting a messianic promise from the book of Isaiah. Then he says, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That's a prophetic declaration from Jeremiah. Very important to understand the text. And the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, they heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him. Because not only does Jesus hate religion, But religion hates Jesus. And it wants to destroy him, to kill him. In a few days, they're going to get their way. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished at the teachings. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples, they left. They went out of the city. As he passed by in the morning, so it's the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse, it has withered. Now, earlier in the week, I posted on Facebook and I asked people, what is your biggest pet peeve? What's that one thing? that gets on your nerves, frustrates you more than anything else? What is your biggest pet peeve? And I posted it, and I got over a hundred comments because people love to complain. (laughs) Which is my pet peeve, so I set you up. And a hundred people posted, and they were just sharing their favorite pet peeves, the thing that gets on their nerves, that frustrates them more than anything else. And so I decided I was going to actually read to you some of your pet peeves. How about when people smack their gum or chew with their mouth open? Okay, is that a pet peeve? Anybody? Raise your hand. Is that yours? Okay, we got one in the back. There we go. Um, I was going to ask how many of you do that, but you wouldn't tell the <laughs> truth anyway. So uh, what about this one? The sound of a plastic spoon scraping against styrofoam. Okay, that one's, that one's pretty bad as well. Uh, what about when people don't use their blinkers? Okay. The the Lord moves in mysterious ways, but you don't have to please use your blinker. Okay. (laughs) Or how about this one? When you have to repeat yourself? Oh, that one's the worst, isn't it? Uh, How about this one? When you have to repeat yourself? Oh, that one's the worst, isn't it? (laughs) All right. what, What about, what about this one? Um, when people say "anyways" with an "s" afterwards, "anyways," right? That's not a word. That's not a word. Or when people spell "a lot" a lot and they like don't put the space in "a lot." You, you know what I'm talking about? Any, any any like grammar nerds in here? Any grammar nerds? Okay, I do that a lot. <laughs> or what about what about this one? Um, when you repeat yourself. Oh, that one's the worst, isn't it? How about whenever someone chews on a bottle cap? That's my wife's pet peeve. And that's me, I chew on bottle caps. (laughs) I am my wife's pet peeve. (laughs) But we all have pet peeves. We all have that thing that drives us crazy. You have your thing, I have my thing, Ashley has her thing, but do you know that Jesus has his thing too? That there is one thing that frustrates Jesus more than anything else, you know what it is? It's religion. Because religion takes a good thing and makes it into a bad thing, because religion ruins everything. In fact, this isn't the first conflict that Jesus gets in with the religious leaders. No, no, no. We have seen this over and over and over again throughout the book of Mark. But we see it most clear today in three areas. We see it with the temple, we see it with the priests, and we see it with the sacrifices. Now, question, is the temple a good thing or a bad thing? It's actually a good thing. In fact, God made the temple. In fact, the temple actually started all the way back in the book of Genesis, that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. See, the purpose of the temple was to have God's manifest presence dwell with his people, because you know what? God's always wanted relationship with his people. He's always wanted to be with his people. And so God's first temple was the Garden of Eden. And then after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, and then God chose the nation of Israel, and as they're going through the wilderness, as they're being rescued from Egypt, God instills another temple, but this time it's called a tabernacle, that the presence of God would dwell in the tabernacle, and he would be with his people because he's always wanted a relationship. And then David comes along, the great king, king of Israel, and God gives him the vision of what the temple is supposed to be. David lays it out, and then his son Solomon finishes, and he builds the temple. See, the temple is God's idea. The temple is a good idea, because the temple is a good thing, because God wants to be with his people. The temple is a good thing. How about this one? How about priests? Are priests good things? They're good things. In fact, God actually chose a group of men out of the tribe to become the priests over Israel so they could mediate between God and man, so that they could pray for the people, they could teach the scriptures, and they could provide the spiritual care that the nation needs. Priests were good things. What about sacrifices? Was the sacrifice a good thing? Sacrifices were good. So if you want to have your sins forgiven, you would need to bring a sacrifice, pure, spotless, lamb that had no default, no sin, no wrinkle or anything, no stains. It needed to be perfect. God always required the perfect sacrifice and then you would just shed the blood of the animal and it would cover or atone for the sins of the people. And the sacrifice actually finds its origin in Genesis chapter 3. God performs the first sacrifice. After Adam and Eve sin, he takes an animal, he sheds its blood and then he takes the the, the skin of the animal and he clothes Adam and Eve in their shame and he forgives them. And then the sacrifice also happens with Noah and with Abraham. We see it with Moses. We see it with David because it's through the sacrifice or the covenant that God enters into relationship with his people. And this is obviously what we see with the Lord Jesus, that he is the new covenant sacrifice for us so that way we can have relationship with him. Sacrifice was a good thing. And in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, God instills what is known as a sacrificial System. And this is when he gives it to Moses, different ways and rituals and things that they would do in order to have their sins to be atoned for. And it was all to be commemorative of a, an event known as Passover, which is where Mark chapter 11 through 16 takes place. Passover. To where the angel of death literally passed over the people of Israel. And to rescue them from slavery, from Egypt, they would actually kill the animal, take the Blood, and they would put it over their, door, their doorposts. And if the blood was over the doorpost of that individual, whether they're Israelites or whether they're Egyptians, that death angel would pass over them and he would spare them and rescue them. This is Passover. This is what Jesus is celebrating. He's going to the temple, he's meeting with the priest and they're performing sacrifices. Jesus is following the Bible. Jesus is doing what is right. Because guess what? Those are all good things. They are good things created by God, given to us by God. So what's the problem? The problem is religion that religion crept into their hearts to their lives and to the people and anytime religion gets involved it takes a good thing and it makes it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything and so for 11 chapters jesus has been getting in fights with the religious leaders And they've been in conflict. And now Jesus is bringing that conflict to their place. In Mark chapter one, Jesus gets in a fight with the religious leaders because not only does Jesus hate religion, but they hate Jesus. In Mark one, Jesus preaches a sermon and the religious leaders, they show up and they say, "Mm, Jesus, I didn't like that sermon. Mm, No, I didn't like that exposition of the text. You know, I just don't think you quoted enough dead people. Where's the footnotes? Right? They show up in Mark chapter 1, and Jesus heals a man. They're like, mm, I don't like, I don't agree with the way that you healed that person. I don't think they deserve to be healed. And they want to fight with Jesus on every little thing. They accuse Jesus of not, not observing the Sabbath. They accuse Jesus in Mark chapter 2 of his disciples not fasting. In Mark chapter 5, they actually accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. In Mark chapter 7, which is really crazy, they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you don't wash your hands. Don't you know where germs come from? you got to stop the spread, flat the curve. Jesus, wash your hands. And they get on to Jesus about that. My favorite is in Mark chapter 8. I'll actually read it to you. This is what they say. They're they're wanting a sign. Jesus, prove to us you're God. Give us a sign. Do something. And here's what Jesus said. Every mom in the room understands this. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. (laughs) How many of y'all have toddlers? You know what Jesus is talking about, right? And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Uh. Like how deep do you have to go? Uh. And he says, no sign will be given to this generation. That's how annoyed and angered and frustrated Jesus has towards religion, because religion takes a good thing like the temple, a good thing like the priest, a good thing like the sacrifice, takes a good thing, turns it into a bad thing, because religion ruins everything. And so in Mark chapter one, Jesus, he hated religion. In Mark chapter two, Jesus, he hated religion. In Mark chapter three, Jesus, he hated religion. For everybody who hates repeating themselves, Jesus also hates religion. In Mark chapter five, Jesus hated religion. In Mark chapter seven and Mark chapter eight, Jesus hated religion. And here we see in Mark chapter 11, guess what? Jesus still hates religion. And so I'm gonna give you three reasons more reasons why Jesus hates religion. The first reason is this. It's because religion has foliage but no fruit. Look at it in verse 12. On the following day when they came... From Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found that there was nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples, they heard it. All right, so hungry Jesus, he is looking for a snack. He walks up to the fig tree, and he sees it from a distance, and it has a lot of leaves. But as he gets up close to it, he realizes that it's nothing but leaves it has foliage but it actually has no fruits. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, "Die." And he killed the tree. "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." The tree dead. Jesus kills a tree. Somebody thinking, "That's weird." That's strange. Like, I haven't really heard this story before. Jesus kills a tree? That can't really possibly be what that, what that means. I mean, was Jesus just having a bad day? Like, did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed in Bethany? Right? Was, he, was he hangry? I mean, it says he was hungry. How many of y'all ever been hangry? It's like when you're hungry and angry at the same time, you ever, you ever, maybe that's what Jesus was. Maybe Jesus was just hangry and decided to pitch himself a little temper tantrum. Okay, actually, that's not what's going on here. How many of you know that everything Jesus does is on purpose? That Jesus never does anything on accident, which means there's something more to this story and there's something more under the surface. How many of you think that's the answer? You are correct, my man, because it is. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, here's what you would understand, is that the fig tree was one of God's favorite nicknames for the nation of Israel. As you go and you read through the prophets, you'll see on numerous occasions, God refers to them as his fig tree. We see it in Nahum, we see it in Micah, we see it in the book of Amos, and most predominantly we see it in the book of Hosea. I'll go ahead and read it to you right now because I know... Probably don't have a lot of Hosean scholars where God says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. See, God had chosen the nation of Israel. That they would be his people and that they would go out and they would produce fruit. That he saw them as his fig tree in the desert. That the whole world is lost and broken and hopeless and dry and barren wasteland. And his people are to be his fig tree in the middle of a desert. That they would produce good fruit to be a blessing, to be helping, to be loving, to be kind, and to be his witness to all of the world. His people were to produce good fruit. that he blessed them so that they could bless others that God would help them so that they could help others that God would nourish them and nurture them and take care of them and provide for them so that they could provide and produce fruit for others that was God's plan for his people to produce fruit and then Jesus God in the flesh the second member of the trinity entering into human history and he's coming to check on his fig tree how's his people doing? And he walks up to him for three years, and all they're doing is fighting and arguing and discriminating against others and making it hard for people to experience freedom. And Jesus walks up to the fig tree and he sees that it has a lot of leaves, but it has no fruit. It has foliage. But it has no fruit. And Jesus says, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And he kills the tree. See, this is not a temper tantrum from the Lord Jesus. This isn't just a bad day in Bethany for Jesus. No, this is a prophetic declaration of judgments against the religious leaders and against the forthcoming temple that we're going to see in a minute. Jesus walks up to the tree and he casts judgment against the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Why? Because it had foliage, but it had no fruits. And that's the danger with religion is that on the outside, religion looks really good. On the outside, religion looks like they have it all together. On the outside, people who are religious, they look like everything is perfect and fine and everything's great and good and wonderful. On the outside, everything looks great, but when you get up close, you see that they're barren. They look good on the surface, but when you go under the surface, you realize their roots are rotten. On the, bu- on the outside, they look busy, but on the inside, they're broken. They have foliage, but they have no fruit. They look good from a distance, but up close, they are diseased because they have foliage, but they don't have any fruit. Now, I'm sure we all know somebody who's like this. I'm sure we've all met somebody who's like this. If you grew up in church, you probably met them. If you grew up in Southeast Texas, you know somebody who went to church and you probably met them too. Because this is a person who always gets everything right. On the outside, they look fine. They say the right words. They speak in the right tongues. They read the right translation of the Bible. They wear the right clothes. They say the right things. They can quote the right verses. Their Instagram bio has hashtag blessed and it says Jesus like 17 times. They look like they have everything all together. Right, they, they 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 don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't chew, and they definitely don't go with girls who do. You know those people. They, they they say the right words, they say the right things, they vote for the right person. And by the right person, I mean the person on the right, because everybody knows that's the person who's right. Because they're religious. This is this is what is this is the person who you know on your Facebook feed. Anytime that that post comes across with Anakin Skywalker, Jesus, it says ninety nine people will not share this because they're ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the? They're the first person that clicks share. They're like, click that share button so everybody can see just how special and religious I am. On the outside, everything looks great, but then when you get to know them, nobody likes them. Do you know why? Because the more closer you get to somebody, the more you're able to see who they truly are. That from a distance, religion looks really good. But when you get up close, when you get involved, when you get to know them, you realize there's a disease. Something is wrong underneath the surface. We all know this person. And you know how I know that we all know this person? Because we've all been this person. We've all been the person who says one thing and does something else. We've all been the person who wants everybody to think we're fine and we project an appearance of perfection when on the inside we're covering our hurts and our wounds and our own personal bitterness. See, I know that we know this person because I think if we're just going to be honest, we've all been this person a time or two in our lives. And it's really easy to make a big long list of everybody who we deem as religious. But just remember, religious people love lists. And as soon as you make a list, you're religious. They love pointing fingers at other people because that's what religion does instead of allowing Jesus to walk up and judge them. See, we can't use this text to start judging others. What we need to do is we need to allow this text to judge us. We need to let Jesus walk up to the fig tree of our lives and we need to see if we're producing fruit. Are you producing fruit in your life? Are people better because of you? Are the people around you blessed because of you? Are you helping others? Are you loving others? Are you serving others? Are you generous and kind to others who are in need? Is the world better because of you? Are you making a difference in someone else's life? What about at your job? Is your job better because of you? Are you a blessing? Are you bearing fruit at your work? What about at college? Are you bearing fruit in your dorms? Are you bearing fruit in your classes with your classmates? Are you bearing fruit when you go home with your wife and with your kids? Are you producing good fruit in your life? Are people better because of you? Or do people run away from you? Do people hide from you? Do people resent you? Or as people get closer to you, do they realize that you're not really who you say that you are? It's very important for us to not point fingers at others, but to allow the Lord Jesus to point the finger at us. And so what I want to do is I want to use this text as an opportunity to give you a little diagnosis a little self-diagnosis to see if you have this spiritual disease. Because that's what it is, it's a a disease. It's like a cancer that creeps into our lives and hearts and it's so subtle because it lives underneath the surface. But it infects and affects every relationship and aspect in our life and so we need to see if we have this disease in our lives as well. So I wanna give you three symptoms of a spiritual disease. Three symptoms to be able to help you figure out if you have this spiritual disease. Now, I want you to understand Something. the problem with them was not that there was no fruit because well there was no fruit but the problem was deeper than that if you're taking notes write this down the problem is there was no root see the root was actually what caused the lack of production the fruit that somewhere deep down in their lives they allowed religion and pride to take root in their hearts and it killed what god was doing in their life Where there is no fruit, there is no roots because there was a disease that crept in and stole the fruit. So let's just take a look at some of these opportunities for us to diagnose ourselves. Now, it's important for us to do this because actually Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He writes this, he says, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Israel failed to meet the test. Jesus judged the religious leaders, and it withered away at the root, and it died. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. It was too late for Israel. God was patient with them throughout all of the Old Testament. He was patient, giving them every chance and every opportunity to repent and to turn away. But then Jesus comes, and he judges them because they do not have any fruit. It was too late for them, but if you're here, it's not too late for you. There's still a chance, there's still a moment, there's still an opportunity, there's still life available for you. But we need to test and examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith and see if this symptom of the disease doesn't explain us. So the first symptom of religious disease is this, there is no depth. Let me go ahead and get my little illustration here for you. Me and Jesus, we have something in common. We both killed a tree. So, this is actually a plant, a little bit different. It's our church plant. But um, this, there's no depth here, right? This is what happens when disease sets in, is that eventually it kills the tree. And one of the symptoms is there is no depth. So for us, what this means is the roots can't go down and it can't get the nutrients that it needs to flourish in life because there is no depth. And so you might know that you have this in your life when you want to keep everything surface level. Don't let anybody get close to you. Don't let anybody get to know you. Don't let anybody get to see the real you, not the you you pretend to be, or the facade that you show others, but don't let anyone get close enough to see the true you, the real you. And so you gotta keep everything surface level. Don't join a serve team because then you're gonna have some responsibility and you don't have the depth to be able to hold onto that responsibility. Don't, don't become a member of a church because then you have to submit under spiritual authority and then other people are going to be involved in your life. You can't handle that because there's no depth in your life. You say one thing, you do another thing, and you have all the platitudes and answers, but there is no depth to you because there's a spiritual disease. Or maybe you join a small group, but you don't give them the real answers. No, you give them the right answers. Because every religious person knows there's a difference between being right and being real, amen? Because you can be right. You can exegete the text and you can quote all the dead theologians and you can talk about how much the the meaning of marriage is that a man would love a woman the same way Jesus loves a church, but your wife can't stand you. Everybody knows the real answers versus the right answers. Difference. So you can join a small group, but keep it really, really surface level. Say the right things, because when people get to know you, then all of a sudden they're going to see the true you. Don't raise your hand. Come forward for prayer. Do not do that, because if you come forward for prayer, no matter how hard the sermon hit, people might think you have a problem. And you come forward for prayer. Oh, no, you can't do that. Then you might have a problem. Don't do that, because there is no true depth. The second thing is this, there is no growth. Listen, it doesn't matter how many times or how often I water this plant, it ain't working. There is no growth. That there could be water, there could be nutrients, there could be sunlight, there could be shade, but it doesn't matter what's going to happen because when that disease has set in, nothing's going to be able to produce the growth. This is what religious people do all the time. They say, I'm not growing, I want to grow, I need to grow, I want to grow, I'm just not being fed. Look around you. Other people are growing. If you're not growing, can I just say that's your fault, nobody else's, because I've seen grass grow on concrete. If you're not growing, that's not anybody's fault, but your own. Look around the room. They're growing. Look, they just gave their lives to Jesus. They just got baptized. They just signed up to start tithing for the first time. God's doing a miracle in their marriage. We had a person who came forward, you know, earlier this week, and as they're praying, God's delivering them from drug addiction. Other people, God is working and moving in their lives. If they're growing, why aren't you growing? Maybe the problem's not with them. Maybe the problem's with you. Say, so worship just didn't do it for me today. Really? Because I didn't think we worshiped you. I thought we worshiped the Lord. I didn't think worship was for you. I thought it was for him. Okay, yeah. So um, maybe the problem is not with worship team. Maybe the problem is with you. You have no depth and you have no growth. If the word isn't ministering to your soul, the problem's not with the word because God's word doesn't return without void. And if the Bible's opened, then God's word's being preached. There's an opportunity for growth. But if you walk out these doors the same way that you came in here, maybe the problem's not with the church. Maybe the problem's not with your small group. Maybe the problem's with you. You have no depth. You have no growth. And religious people love to blame other people for their problems. Which leads to the final point. There is no change. I can take this plant, and I can uproot it, and I can move it, and I can plant it somewhere else. Here you go. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know what? Even if I move this plant somewhere else and surround it with other healthy plants, it's still not going to grow. Because eventually, you're going to reach to a point to where you are unable to respond to healthy environments. In fact, if I replant this and the disease is so crept in, it's going to begin to affect the other trees around it because it's reached a point to where it's no longer able to respond to the nutrients, to the nourishment, to the sunlight, or even to the other trees that are around it. It just spreads the disease even further. This is why when you get around people who are healthy, you get angry. This is why when you get around people who God's working in their life, you get jealous of them. This is why when other people are experiencing freedom, you begin to excuse and say they're shallow or they're theologically inaccurate or I'm just not having the maturity level that other people, okay. You're just making religious excuses for your own rebellion and disobedience. You reach a point to where you become angry and bitter at other people for God working in their life as well. It's a very dangerous place for us to be because the roots in our lives have withered away. We are no longer producing the fruit that God wants to do in our life. And so before we move on to the rest of the message, I really think we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do a great work in our hearts right here. Because whatever I say next isn't going to make any sense if you don't get this. That it's the Spirit of God that produces the fruit in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. Are you experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you experiencing the blessings of God around you, in you, and through you for others? If not, you may have a spiritual disease. And so here's what I want to do before we move on I want to pray for us so that way we can allow the Spirit of God to begin to work in our hearts to produce fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in our church right now. God, that the Spirit would begin to minister into our hearts. That he would bring life and vitality and flourishing and health and hope and healing into our hearts. God, we repent of religion, of rulemaking and of finger-pointing and of backbiting and of blame-shifting. And Lord, we take personal responsibility for our actions. And God, we hand those over to you. Father, forgive us so we don't end up like Israel. Father, forgive us so we don't become busy on the outside, but a barren fig tree on the inside. Let us produce good fruit. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And now we're going to move to the second reason that Jesus hates religion. It's because religion hurts people instead of helping them. Here's what we see. In verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay, now typically, whenever you hear about the temple, most common, people think about the holy place or the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant would have been with the cherubim and the showbread, where the priests would go in and perform sacrifices with the sprinkling of blood. That's normally what we envision when we think about the temple, but actually the temple is a lot bigger than this. The temple, some estimate, was 14 football fields. Like, that's how massive it was. One of the ancient architectural wonders of the world. It would be gold-plated all across the top. So much money and time and energy was spent in building the temple. Josephus, the early historian, actually said that on any given Passover, there would be 250,000 animal sacrifices in one single day. And if you think about it, that would mean that the head of the household would perform the sacrifice for the entire family. So you're looking at upwards of 500,000 people in the temple on a Passover. It was a massive, massive place. In fact, I actually have a, 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 a graphic to show y'all because we're going to be spending so much time in the temple over the next five chapters. Go ahead, throw that graphic up there. If you see in the middle, that's the holy place. That's typically what people think of. But everything else around it is where Mark, 1, 11, Mark 11 through 16 takes place. Jesus actually never enters into the holy place. His ministry takes place around it. So next week, she's going to be preaching at Solomon's portico. There's a story in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus goes into what is known as the court of the the women. That's where Jesus sees the, the widow with the two copper pennies. That takes place in the court of the women. But today, we're actually seeing the court of the Gentiles or the Gentile courtyard, that's all this other space between here. And the Gentile courtyard is because in Mark here, it says that my house shall be a house of prayer for who? For all the nations. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. See, the Gentile courtyard was a place where Gentiles, people like you and me, far from God, non-Jewish could come and we could worship, we could pray, we could bring sacrifices, we could meet with the priest, we could have our sins forgiven, and we could convert into the religious faith of the day. We could convert into Judaism and become the people of God. That Gentiles were always included in the temple. But what religion did is religion drove them away. And it set up an exchange of commerce Whereat, Not on the outside. You would think they could just do it, here, they could do it over here. Or maybe they could do it over here. Or maybe they could do it over there. But no. That's not why they did it. They chose to do it where the gentiles were supposed to be because they didn't want them there in fact here's kind of how it worked if you wanted to worship you would have to go to the temple perform your sacrifices meet with priests good thing bad thing come on guys good thing but you had to use temple money you say what's temple money have you ever been to chuck e cheese same thing like your money is no good at Chuck E. Cheese. You have to use Chucky's money. And so if you want to go to Chuck E. Cheese and play a game, you have to have an exchange. You have to give them your money. They give them their money. Same way when it comes to the temple. And so commentators will actually say that the exchange rate at the temple would be 16 times the actual Money rate. So $1 is actually $16. Okay? So if you want to go to the temple, it's gonna be $100. If you wanna meet with the priest, it's gonna be $500. Do you see how this is working? So they're making a profit, an extraordinary profit off of the people. It's a great way for them to make a little bit of money. And so you wanna go meet with the priest, you have to pay the temple tax, you have to pay the temple tithe, you have to pay the priest for this extra money. But here's where it gets really bad when it comes to the sacrifices. So you would have to bring a spotless, perfect lamb in order to make your sacrifice, and kids would actually spend the whole year raising their animal. So little Johnny, you know he's doing his FFA, he's you know, raising, the, raising the lamb, and he's so proud of his little lamb that he raised, and he finally goes to Jerusalem, and he's gonna, he's gonna bring his sacrifice. And when he gets there, they say, no, you can't make the sacrifice. Your lamb's not a temple lamb. You have to have a temple lamb. We have these special lambs. And so we'll take your lamb and we'll give you ours, but it's going to cost you $10,000. But I don't have $10,000. Sorry, Johnny, your sins aren't forgiven this year. Because if you want to have your sins forgiven, you have to use our temple money. You have to use our temple lambs. You have to meet with our temple priest. And if you don't pay, you don't pray. And you're not going to be forgiven this year. And so they say, well, I guess I have to do it. So they would make them payment and they would leave and go perform their sacrifice. And then 30 minutes later, as you're walking out, they're reselling your lamb to someone else for the same price that you paid. Do you see how wicked this is? Do you see what they're doing that makes it so wrong? Wrong. But to make matters even worse, Mark is the only one that includes this word right here, pigeon. See, that's interesting. Why, why would he include pigeons there? Because, in fact, there's a provision in the law that allows the poorest of the poor to bring a pigeon. The lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the outcasts and homeless were allowed to bring pigeons because they couldn't afford the sacrifice. And here they're selling the pigeons, they're ripping off the poor. They're ripping off the needy, the lowly. And pop quiz redemption guess what sacrifice Jesus' mother Mary brings after his birth? A pigeon. Because she was poor. And Jesus was poor. And they were outcasts. And Jesus walks into the temple and he says, If my own mom came here, you would rip her off too. Anybody else angry? Y'all ready to start flipping tables? Yeah. Ready? like, let me, me go get, get my whip. I'll be right back. Come on, me and Jesus, we're going we're to so start flipping some tables. Now, before you get ready to start flipping some tables, put your whip away for just a moment, because we do the same thing in church. Anytime we hurt people instead of helping them. Anytime we hurt people and we make it harder for them to hear the gospel message, we're no different than the temple. Anytime we hurt people, instead of helping them, we're no different than the religious leaders when we hurt people instead of helping them. I mean, this would be the exact same thing as if, say, a homeless man were to walk through the doors of our church, and we sat him in the back so they didn't stink up the place and make all the middle-class white families offended. This would be the same thing as if a woman in our church gets pregnant from a one-night stand. And instead of loving her and supporting her and giving discipleship opportunities for her, we refuse to dedicate the child. This would be the same thing as if a a couple in our church gets a divorce. A few weeks go by and the woman finally builds up enough courage to walk through the doors in our church. And instead of loving and hugging and crying and weeping with her, we look her up and down and we gossip about her behind our back. I mean, we could just keep, we could just keep going. It's the same thing as if an LGBT person were to walk through the doors of our church and we tell them, your kind is not welcome here. And we make it difficult for them to hear the message of Jesus. Anytime that happens, you're no different than the religious leaders. How dare you? Jesus is about to flip your tables. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Who do you think you are? Look what it says. He says, my house. Whose house is it? It ain't your house. This ain't your church. This ain't my church. This is his church. It's his house. And his house is a house of prayer for who? The nations. You know what nations means? People. All people. You know what all means? All. Everyone. Not some. Not most. Not all not the people who look like you not the people who dress like you act like you think like you vote like you or are the same political party or persuasion or the same tax bracket as you not those people all means all jesus says my house is for all nations you need to be very careful when you exclude those who god wants to include when you exclude those who God wants to include, you're no different than the religious leaders. See, but they're not like us. Well, you're not like Jesus, so there we go. They don't look like us, think like us, they don't behave like us. They don't do the same things that we do. They don't read our translations. And they just keep coming here and they just keep messing everything up. And I just, I can't handle that. I can't have that. Listen, when you decide who's in, who's out, you put yourself in a very bad place. Because you ain't the judge. Jesus is the judge. Our job is to love. Come on. That's Jesus' job. And anytime you try to figure out who's in, who's out, and you begin to exclude those who God includes, you're a very dangerous place. That's about the time Jesus is gonna walk into your heart and start flipping over the tables of your life. Do not exclude those who God includes. You wanna hear something that's absolutely insane? The the religious leaders, this was actually a prophecy of the coming Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would cleanse the temple. They said, this is how you'll know that the Messiah has come. He will enter into the temple and he will cleanse it. And that's exactly what Jesus did, but he didn't do it the way that they thought he would do it because they thought Jesus was gonna cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Let's get all these Gentiles out of here. Let's get all these Gentiles, these filthy Gentiles and dirty pigeons. Let's just get rid of them. One day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to get rid of them and this place is going to be perfect and clean and nice and shiny. Oh, it's going to be so nice when all these Gentiles ain't here. And Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple, but not of the Gentiles. He cleanses it for the Gentiles. Because Jesus loves to to love the people we love to hate. Jesus loves to love the people that we love to hate. You know, tragically, earlier in this year, we had a family in our church leave our church and here's what they said. The reason we're leaving is because get this, they said, y'all just let anybody go to church there. They thought that that was a criticism. I took it as a compliment. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're You're right. Yeah. We wouldn't let people like you come here. (laughs) But I've discovered this is that Jesus loves to love the people that we love to hate. Listen, our church is messy. I understand that. I get it. The Gentile courtyard, probably messy. Right? Our church is messy. I get it. You know why I love y'all redemption? Because y'all are a bunch of filthy Gentiles and dirty pigeons. <laughs> but that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is, guys. And we're all far from him. Before we met him, we were far from him. There was no righteousness in our own. We come with him with nothing. And he welcomed us. Yes. We're Gentiles far from God. And we're spiritually bankrupt and broken. We can't even afford a pigeon. And yet He welcomes us freely. We're all filthy Gentiles and dirty pigeons. And He loves us. Listen, you don't clean up to come to Jesus, that's not the message that we preach. You don't clean up to come to Jesus, get your life together first before you come to Jesus, go change before you step through the doors of this church. No, we don't clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and he cleanses us. We come to him with our brokenness. We come to him with our hopelessness. We come to him just as we are and he makes space and he welcomes us and he cleanses us. And if you don't let Jesus cleanse your heart and cleanse you of your sin, he will curse your branches and he will cleanse that temple and he will flip your tables. Listen, our church is messy, I get it. Are there areas that we need to improve on? Oh yeah. Some of y'all, you're messy. I love you, you're messy. I had to delete my Twitter because some of y'all are so messy. (laughs) But listen, it's the same people who make the church messy that also make it meaningful. Listen, I know your story. I know what God's doing in your life. And I know what God's doing in your life. And I know the mess in your life, but I also know how God's bringing restoration and healing in it too. I know your testimony and story. I know you guys. I know you. We're at a place right now where, yeah, okay, there is some mess in our church, but God is bringing great meaning out of it. And the moment we lose our mess is the moment our church begins to lose its meaning. The moment we reach a place where we decide who's welcomed and who's not is the moment that we become a figless fig tree and a faithless temple who's ready to get their tables flipped. It's the people who make the church and it's the people who are messy who bring the greatest meaning into the life of a church. Do not exclude those who God includes and do not hurt others help them instead. Help them experience the grace and hope that only Jesus has to offer. Which leads to the final point. Not only does religion hurt people and have foliage with no figs or fruit, but number three is this, religion withers instead of worships. The whole thing was designed to worship God. The sacrifices were designed as a worship for God. The priests were a form of worship to the Lord. The temple was a place where God's people could come and they could worship and experience God's presence with them. God's desire was that they would worship, but then religion comes in and instead of worshiping, what do we see happen? It withers. Here's how the story closes. And when the evening came, they went out of the city and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree with away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it has withered because religion takes a good thing, makes it into a bad thing because religion ruins everything. Was the temple a good thing? Yes, until religion got a hold of it. Was the sacrifices a good thing? Yes, until religion got a hold of it. Were the priests a good thing? Yes, until religion got a hold of it. And then religion, man's attempts and efforts through outward experiences or appearances to earn favor from God and to keep other people out, it ruins everything. And you know how many priests there are this year? Zero. Do you know how many sacrifices were made last year? 250,000 in a single day in Jesus' day. Do you know how many were made last year? Zero. Do you know what the temple is today? The architectural wonder of the world is nothing but a pile of rubble and a tourist attraction. Because instead of worshiping, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it withered away at its roots. That's what religion does. Religion will cause you to wither away at the roots and it will destroy you. But let me show you something. How many of you know that Jesus never removes something without replacing it with something better? That's what Jesus always does. When Jesus removes something in your life, he's going to replace it with something better for you. I mean, this is how Jesus operates. When Jesus removes blindness, he replaces it with sight. Whenever Jesus removes sickness, he replaces it with healing. Whenever Jesus removes the storm, he replaces it with peace. Whenever Jesus removes guilt, he replaces it with grace. Whenever Jesus removes shame, he replaces it with freedom. Whenever Jesus removes one thing in your life, he is doing that so he can replace it with something better and here in this text we see that jesus is removing religion if you have religion in your heart jesus wants to remove that religion in your heart he is removing religion and he's replacing with something better and here's what it's always been genuine relationship with him Jesus wants to remove the religion in your heart and replace it with a genuine relationship with him because that's what it's always been about, worshiping. And so look what Jesus does. Yes, he removes the temple. Yes, he removes the priests. Yes, he removes the sacrifices, but he replaces them with something else. He replaces them with himself because now we don't have to go to a temple to meet God's presence. You know where we go? We go straight to Jesus because Jesus became our temple now. Jesus is our temple. Listen what he says in John 2, 19. Destroy this temple, and I will rise it again in three days. He was speaking of the temple of his body, that Jesus is our temple. We don't have to journey to Jerusalem. We don't have to make a pilgrimage. We don't have to pay a temple tax to be able to meet with Jesus. The only thing we got to do is we got to run to him. We got to go to him, and he's always there for us 24-7, every single day out of the week in the year. Jesus is our temple. He is the presence of God with us in our life. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We can hit our knees by our bed, and we can be in the very presence of God, because Jesus is our temple. We see that Jesus is our priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, he is now our great high priest. That he hears and answers every single one of our prayers. That he's always there. He is interceding on our behalf. We don't go and see a man about anything. No, we go see Jesus about everything because Jesus is our great high priest. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Go see Jesus, your great high priest, who his temple, his priestliness performs our sacrifice. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. God is not impressed by the blood of bulls and lambs because it's all about the blood of his son Jesus Christ this is what we see in John 1 29 behold the lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world Jesus is the perfect lamb of God he is spotless without wrinkle he never sinned no fall no flaw no failure were in him he lived the perfect life the life that you never could live he died the painful death in our place for our sins the death that we deserve and he goes to the cross as the new covenant sacrifice for us his shed blood washes away all of our sins behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world this is our Jesus and do you know how much it costs you to get into this temple do you know how much it costs you to go see your priest do you know how much it costs you to make a sacrifice now Nothing. Because he did it all for you. Whether you're rich or poor, your money is no good with him. Because he welcomes everybody. He says, come to the temple. I will be your priest. And I will be your sacrifice. And you can worship me. And you can be with me. Here's the main reason Jesus hates religion. It's the last note is because religion robs you of a relationship with Jesus. That's what it does. It robs you of your relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. It's always been about relationship with you. The temple was about God's presence. The priests were about prayers. The sacrifice was about forgiveness and worship. It's always been about relationship and religion will rob you of what God truly wants to do in your life. That's why it's so dangerous. Listen, Redemption, we got a good thing going for us. Right now in our church, we have a good thing going for us. I mean, just to think about all the baptisms, all the memberships. I mean, we got 50 kiddos running in the back. We probably got like 15 babies we need to dedicate. God's doing some really good things in the life of our church. And there's one thing that will ruin everything, and that's religion. If we wanna see others experience life change through Jesus, move out of this building, buy and renovate the next one, we'll just move that over there if we're not careful. We have to address this issue in our hearts, this issue of religion. Redemption, I pray that we never stop being filthy Gentiles and dirty pigeons. (laughs) Because that's what gives our church meaning.